Welcome to My Dog Ate My Book Report, a podcast where two weirdo 30-somethings take turns introducing each other to a formative book from childhood the other has never read. I'm Brandon, he, him. I'm Ren, they, them. Yeah, and, and today we're talking about one of my picks, The Egypt Game by Zilpha Keatley Snyder. Ren, mm-hmm. I have several things I feel like I need to say and I'm trying to figure out what I need to say in what order. <laughs> I was expecting some sort of like interesting little affectation to your intro or something a la april oh maybe i should have would you believe that i am currently wearing fake eyelashes (laughs) i'm not but i'm very i'm very good at acting in a vocal sense (laughs) as a person who is wearing fake eyelashes would you mind if i bat my fake eyelashes auditorily at you yeah uh I have a sound effects record to play. Um, so, yeah. Nobody's going to know what we're talking about. I I did not understand those jokes when I was a child. Oh, man. So good. So, <laughs> whew. well, number one, I think that I should preface. Um, you know, we, we do our book choices essentially in pairs since we're alternating. So we kind of decide on our next book choice more or less at the same time, usually. And sometimes what one of us is choosing informs what the other person chooses for the uh, for the same slot, so to speak. It's not a formal thing that we've done, but it is a thing that we've sometimes kind of done if it seemed to make sense to us. I mean, some of those choices, though, have been like when we find the connections between them, it's a bit of a stretch. It's like yeah. I pick the mouse and the motorcycle and you pick a book that a kid happens to be riding a motorcycle in one part. Yeah, which is an excellent coincidence. An excellent rationale. That is not what happened when we picked the two books that we picked at this juncture: uh, Z for Zechariah, which we talked about last time, and uh, the Egypt Game, the one we're talking about today. But uh, we did, I think, accidentally have a theme. I'm like narrowing my eyes skeptically in your direction. The theme. You can hear that. Yeah, I can. Okay. The theme is that we both picked books that have some pretty dark content in them that we did not remember at all. Mm, okay. They're not really on the same level, I suppose, but still, I did. We'll get there. Um, yeah. I suppose we should probably content warning then. I actually yes. didn't think of a lot of things here aside from uh, it is a book that maybe hasn't aged great in some ways because there's a lot of what could be called cultural appropriation in there uh there's also a child murderer and and the mention of murder of children so and that's the part i had no recollection of being anything to do with this book yeah there's sort of a running theme of the adults are all worried about this child serial killer yeah and like it plays into the climax of the book i was just like i remember kids and they have this make-believe game about egypt and it made me want to have a make-believe game and that was great. I did not recall that it ended because a child murderer tried to kill the protagonist. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about this protagonist. Oh, man. April. I did find a couple funny things here. I had a type. I've said this a lot, and I didn't realize it at the time, the time being elementary school. In my head, I've always kind of thought of this book in largely the same category as 
from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. Um, I read this one first by a year or two. I can't remember if I read this in third or fourth grade. Mixed up files was definitely fifth grade. But in my brain, the sort of feeling of positive regard I had for them was very similar. And I kind of felt like it was for similar reasons. Um, not that anybody in this book goes and runs away to Egypt or, or even the Egyptian wing of a museum, but... They do sneak away to Egypt. Yeah, there's some clandestine children creating their own little world, sort of. Uh, also, both of these books have protagonists who are girls who are just the worst sometimes. Okay, okay, hold on. This is some April slander, and I will not have it. Fine. Well, April, April's fine. So, The Egypt Game is the tale of 11-year-old April, who's the daughter of a presumably, she would have you believe, and I think she honestly believes, up-and-coming Hollywood actress. But her Hollywood actress mother is on tour or something with her new boyfriend, and... So April is sent to live with her grandmother in Berkeley, California. Her grandmother, who she doesn't have a ton of a relationship with uh, to begin with, even to the point that she calls her grandmother Caroline instead of grandma uh, at the beginning. And April is just really ready for when her mother will come back and sweep her back to Hollywood. And until then, she is going to act like she's better than everybody, wear her hair up in like a... Hollywood updo, wear fake eyelashes, talk about Hollywood all the time to all of the children at the school she now attends, and she is only saved from this ill-advised approach to life by one of her new neighbors and future bestie, Melanie, who pretty quickly intervenes because she realizes that school will eat April alive. April and Melanie discover, though, that they have a shared love for learning about archaeology and ancient stuff, and in particular, Egypt. And so their friendship blossoms around checking out all the books about Egypt from the library. Fairly soon, especially after the discovery of a disused yard behind an antique shop that is near the building where they live, this fascination becomes an ongoing imagination game that they call the Egypt game, where in that yard with a bust of Nefertiti and a lot of other junk they over the time acquire, they have this ongoing story of their version of Egypt, adding to it rituals and history of their own. And also, as time goes on, more inhabitants. The, the third original Egyptian is Melanie's younger brother, Marshall. He's like four. And uh, let's see, the fourth original Egyptian is Marshall's stuffed octopus security. (laughs) And then over time, they also recruit Elizabeth, who is a a nine-year-old girl who who moves into their building a little ways in. And then later on, uh, a couple of boys from their class, Ick, (laughs) Toby, and Ken. And so this shared imagination game continues until April almost gets kidnapped by a child murderer and Egypt is uns- uh, mm. Egypt is sadly discovered by uh, you know people saving her from being kidnapped by a child murderer the end there's also like 
mysterious notes and things. Yeah, I mean, there's a I, I ever since I sort of like just freehanded the Animorphs synopsis, I've decided that I need to avoid minutia at the synopsis stage. That is fair. I had an Egypt fixation as a child. Who who didn't? Who didn't? I mean, I don't know. I feel like I didn't know a lot of other kids who did. If you never had an Egypt phase in your childhood, what are you? Neurotypical? I guess that might be. Yeah. <laughs> well, because I have, I have wondered, this is a minor digression, but a thing about me is that uh, I was diagnosed with ADHD a few years ago as an adult. And it's one of those things that generally they tell you is pretty much always diagnosed in childhood. And part of that diagnosis and learning how to treat it, uh, all of which has been very positive from a headspace in general, was learning that like I had the perception of ADHD, especially as a child, of like the kid who's always disruptive in class and like won't stay in his seat and like keeps on interrupting the teacher, like that kid, right? Because those are the people who you always would hear about like being medicated for it. I was a very good kid in school. And so some of the things that I now look back on as possible symptoms were things that happened to just work within our expectations for education. For example, I didn't realize that the hyperfixation could be the way that it was. And now, in retrospect, there's a lot of things that I did as a kid that I kind of look at and say, was I hyperfixated on this? And Egypt was one of those things. There was there was a period of time in my life where I feel like I just, when I wasn't required to be doing something else, I was reading about, thinking about, imagining about Egypt. It was just all that I did. And at, I felt like that was a normal thing to do as a kid. I mean, why not? Now I kind of wonder if, if that was an early warning sign. Yeah. And that's why I picked this game up. Picked this game up. That's why I picked this book up off of the shelf at one point when I found it at my school in third or fourth grade. I remember that our class had a little bookshelf in the corner of assorted novels and stuff. Separate from, I actually don't know where it came from because it wasn't in the library. It was in the classroom. I assume they belonged to the school. I don't know. I don't know why it was there. But a lot of books that I read at that age, I just discovered on that bookshelf. And this is one of the ones that I found. And because Egypt was in the title, I was like, yep, this one's for me. And I remember just kind of devouring it and do not remember any of the parts about child murder. <laughs> I maybe I'm overplaying that particular fact. It's actually not a huge part of the book, but like, I'm just kind of really shocked. I have no recollection of it being part of the plot. It just seems like such a standout thing. Uh, one of the... Um things that amused me greatly when I uh, finished this book is the very last couple of pages are like, here, would you like to read these other like vaguely similar books? Like from the mixed up files of Miss Basilie Frankweiler? Oh boy. Would you, would you like to read Hatchet? Oh really? <laughs> <laughs> uh, would you like to read The Tombs of Atuan? Oh wow. Has... You're using a physical copy, though, right? I'm using a physical copy. So how did the algorithm get in your physical copy of the book? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so this was... Uh, I just I just remember this one really kind of captivating me with the idea of 
this ongoing you know they call it a game they're larping i'd I'd maybe call it a fiction yeah because you know i I played make-believe with friends and stuff but like it wasn't like we didn't build a mythology generally and the idea of doing like the characters in this book do and having this world that is built up out of some like shared creativity and kept somewhat consistent over time. Uh, and like the fact that the, the, the kids stop sometimes and talk about what facts should be true or how some ritual ought to work. Uh, there's some stuff that I now recognize as yes. And mm. see, I loved that. It It made me think of, when my younger siblings and I got hyper fixated on ancient Rome and like gladiator arenas as a small child. And we went off into the woods behind the house and dug out a gladiator pit and hit each other with sticks, like actual sticks made of wood uh, because we were in the gladiator pit. There was a whole, whole thing we arranged around this, this world of gladiators that we, invented from watching a gladiator documentary yeah so that seemed very that just kind of made me think of that and how how nice it is to just have that freedom as a child to just go outside and let your brain be wild yeah and i definitely remember a couple things that my friends and i would do around this age and i'm not entirely sure whether it was before or after this book um entered my life so i can't say for sure to what degree some of it might have been inspired by this book but i imagine some amount of it was some amount of the idea of an interconnected like series of play sessions over time yeah it it makes me wonder because i know that at least in my childhood that sort of thing dropped off probably when I was around like 15 and we finally got access to video games. I kind of wonder if kids do this sort of nonsense now. Yeah. I don't know. Like we play Minecraft together and that's what we do. Well, in defense of Minecraft, when you play Minecraft with your friends, generally that's a very shared construction kind of activity. You know, knocking Minecraft. I've never actually played Minecraft, but I, yeah, I definitely understand that there's a a very yeah. like together make believe. Yeah, thing. yeah. I don't know. I I definitely stopped doing this kind of stuff when I moved between fourth and fifth grade. Hmm. Um, I only moved across town, but it was far enough that it was a different school, and I was too far away from any of my friends to go play with them unless I convinced my parents to drive you know, half an hour to the other side of town, which of course didn't happen all that often. And and that was after like my main friends in like second through fourth grade lived a few houses up the street from me. So we just went outside and walked to each other's houses after school and could just hang out like every day pretty much. Um, And I just didn't really make new friends of that sort at the new school. I made my new friends mostly through Animorphs and video games. 
And so that's kind of when my life definitely became like socially speaking, when I went over to a friend's house or vice versa, it was usually for video games. So we can talk a little bit about the, uh, the book tends to call them the Egyptians, even though none of them are of Egyptian descent. <laughs> though they are multicultural. Yeah, I was actually really impressed by that. I have a I have a good note when we get to the talking about the author and stuff mm. that I think kind of makes my heart happy. Sort of. <laughs> sort of. Uh, I want to I go back to your April slander at the beginning. Yeah, let's talk about you, April. You said April is horrible. And I feel like that is... That is just an awful thing to say. April's horrible at the beginning. She does get much better once she actually allows for even, Melanie to be her friend. I don't even think she's horrible. I mean... She's, I, okay, so April has been shunted off to a almost stranger by this woman who clearly has done a terrible job raising her so far. Such that, like, she has all of these, like, Hollywood affectations and things that she thinks are, like, the way to be a human. And she's lonely and sad because her mother keeps, like, brushing her off and clearly has no intention of ever, like, having her come live with her again. I think one of the real villains in this story is April's mother. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the child murderer, too, but... Mainly April's mom, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, like, I I do like the character of April quite a lot, ultimately, because I think that her reason for being the way she is is very understandable and it's not like she's doing it out of malice it's not like she's putting on fake eyelashes because she i don't know has some sort of nefarious intent she puts them on because she's used to being in hollywood where everyone is fake and weird and so she's well, doing what she thinks is right i mean at the beginning she is very much kind of like keeping all of the other kids around her at arm's length on the basis of at least appearing to be like used to higher society than this like podunk little school she's in now. Um, and yeah, that's probably to a certain degree, a defense mechanism more than genuine arrogance or something. But I think you could read it as a defense mechanism. And I think you could also read it as, this is just how this girl was taught to act around people in a place like Hollywood. Yeah. Like act like you're more important and better than everyone because everyone's yeah. trying to be more important than everyone. Yeah. yeah. And we, and we never do actually meet Dorothea, um, her mom, and we never do actually go to Hollywood. So we're not super sure of some of the facts of the case versus what April believes because she's been misled or, or raised a certain way. But April gets over the Hollywood thing over time. Yeah. Um, for her, the arc is definitely at first it's dropping the affectation and just like actually genuinely engaging with Melanie and then, and then other kids. And then by the end it's, deciding she doesn't want to go back to Hollywood or at least don't go back to be with her mother. Well, her mother doesn't explicitly invite her to come back. Her mother invites her for a visit for a few days. Yeah, but if, if she had gotten that letter at the beginning of the book, she would have immediately gone in hopes that she would then just stay there, right? Yeah. And I loved how in the the kind of like 
screw you, I'm hanging out with my grandma now letter, she calls grandma grandma, and she calls yeah. her mother Dorothea. So it's like she's reversed the the thing. It's like, yeah. I'm, I'm disrespecting you. It was... Yeah, for those listening who may not have read this book, in the interim, uh, between when this Dorothea horrible mother drops off her child with her mother to just, you know, shunt all responsibility, she goes and gets married, doesn't invite her daughter to the wedding, or her own mother, for that matter. She tells April, I'm going off on tour, so you're going to stay with your grandmother for a little while. Meanwhile, the like she comes back from tour, doesn't say anything for a while, and April just sort of finds out that her mother's been back. It's just it's just awful. Yeah, Dorothy's terrible. She is. Um, she she's definitely the emotional villain here. Um, speaking of villains, I I realized that the book. So I kind of was playing this like trying to outsmart the author thing Mm -hmm. trying to figure out who the child murderer was Mm -hmm. i think the book wants you to think that maybe it's the old man who owns the antique shop the professor the professor and i'm like there's no way it's actually the old man because that's too obvious that's just what you know the book wants us to maybe be thinking because we know he's creepily watching them yeah, the very beginning of the book is actually from his perspective and or or you know, it's not first person, but it's with him as he watches April and Melanie discover the backyard of his shop. And so I was like, of course it's not him. But then I go and my copy of the book has these great illustrations. I don't know if yours did. Yes. And uh the very first page of my copy has the old man in the antique shop just looking like the creepiest creeper and i'm like wait a minute maybe it is him because it's not the first page like in the first chapter it's the literal first page of this book like you open the book there's that and then there's oh there's the title of this book also by this author introduction like so you forget about that picture until you accidentally open it with your thumb one day and you're like oh god that picture's creepy maybe it really is him yeah. It establishes him in the beginning and then he's never mentioned again, really. Oh my god, it might be him. Yeah, it, so. it establishes him at the beginning and April does briefly go into his shop early on and has a short exchange with him because um, she sees some stuff that he has that is from Egypt uh, and he tells her a little about it and that's kind of what gets the ball rolling on the her going and learning about Egypt and stuff like that. But yeah, then he just kind of vanishes for a while. Except as we come to find out, the best the best part, Marshall knew he was watching the entire time. Yeah, I so about halfway through the book, Marshall says something really cryptic because they're like, "We don't want Egypt to be invaded by any strangers." And Marshall just says, "Oh, it's already been invaded." And then it just doesn't address like yeah. why he said that for a while. And I'm yeah. just like, Excuse me, Marshall, come again? What? Marshall's great. He's one of those just like young child characters. He's four years old. It's it's made a point of that he doesn't really behave that much like a four-year-old in particular, that he doesn't tend to talk very much or 
be like an active participant in the game. But when he does talk, it's kind of eloquent and insightful in a way. And so the other characters often just kind of like don't really put a lot of stock in what Marshall actually says because they're busy in their fantasy world that they know that he is only kind of intermittently involved in. Uh, Marshall's usually there because of Melanie, his older sister, um, and, and April's best friend, pretty much, once they get going, and is pretty equally engaged in the entire project of the Egypt game, and just has to watch Marshall a lot. And so he comes too. I liked, I liked the boys. I was worried when the, the their their last two additions to the the Egypt gang, as they call themselves, yeah, are uh, Toby and Ken, who invaded. Basically, they 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 followed them at one point. Yeah, on Halloween, they followed them on Halloween, piled boxes up in the alley, and just watched them over the fence for like an hour. It seemed. And then jumped down and scared the crap out of them. And they were like, hey. And then Elizabeth goes and like guilt trips them into not telling. Yeah. And they just become part of the whole thing. Yeah. And I think they are a fun inclusion. Yeah, because we had met them a couple times earlier. Um, They were mentioned like when the school year started as sort of part of just the characters that April meets at school. Um, As sort of like the the sixth grade ish i think equivalent of like the popular kids mm-hmm. or whatever um and then there were they encountered them a little earlier on halloween night and there's just this antagonism between them and, and april and melanie which a lot boils down to kind of uh they're not none of them are quite the age where you are yet permitted to mingle with children of the opposite sex because they're all gross. Yeah. Toby is super here for it. Toby dives in with like a lot of a lot of ideas of how to expand the game and new things to do with the game. Ken is just sort of also there. Oh, and you mentioned Elizabeth. She is also also there. Yeah, I think she's kind of given the least to do or be. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think there's there's ever a chapter that's like from her her perspective. She and Ken don't get chapters from their perspective. Elizabeth is notable for being the first person who gets to join the game. That's true. Because April and Melanie and, and Marshall were doing it for a while, and then Elizabeth's family moved in, and uh. Elizabeth is nine and they didn't really want to have to deal with Elizabeth. Cause like when you're 11, as the book notes, it, it feels like there's a big age gap between 11 and nine. <laughs> so they went and assessed. Yeah. And so she's, she's relevant for the time that they're like meeting her and kind of introducing her to the game. And that is the first time that anyone else is brought in from the outside. She's generally characterized as being relatively quiet and cooperative, but diplomatic. And so she does sort of fade into the background once, especially once the boys join. Yeah. Her bird dies. Her bird does die. And they do things with it. They do an elaborate funeral for a bird. Yeah. With attempted mummification. Yeah. 
as somebody who owns a pet bird, it was a little <laughs> gruesome to think about. Yeah. Uh, on my end. But I'm glad that they decided that it was too gross to try to actually mummify uh, in terms of, like, you know, pulling out organs and things. Yeah. I think I would have been really grossed out by that. Yeah. U- ultimately, their adherence to any of the things that they learn in the books that they get about Egypt is overall like for convenience. They generally invent their own like rituals and stuff often based loosely upon some fact they know, but then they just just sort of take it and run with it to do their own thing. So the book can kind of be, be split up into a couple of like micro conflicts, which I think are of sort of an interesting escalation the first the first thing that's really like a problem is Melanie tries to find a way to steal April's fake eyelashes so that she doesn't go to school with them and as you said earlier get eaten alive by the other kids and so she she does steal the fake eyelashes hides them and then puts them back once April's sort of forgotten about them which i thought was hilarious I I really liked uh, Melanie as a character at that point. Melanie's <laughs> I'm great. Stealing your object, your, your, I'm stealing your possessions, but I'm doing it for your own good, buddy. Um, and then, uh, then it sort of jumps to, and and, and this, you know all of this is happening while they're developing the Egypt game, uh, and uh, then a child gets murdered, and so the conflict is like, how do we get our parents to? let us out of the house to go back and play the Egypt game. So they, you know, concoct this whole big plan to sneak out during Halloween and stuff. And that all, that all works out. And then they start writing messages to Thoth. Yes, Thoth. uh, And getting responses, which was kind of like a cool, creepy mystery for a little while. Yeah, Toby comes up with the idea of consulting an oracle. Or maybe maybe he isn't the one who came up with the idea. He is the one who like does the ritual part as far as writing a question on a piece of paper and sticking it in Thoth's beak. Thoth here, um actual oh, uh, yep. <laughs> actual Egyptian deity, but like here played by a stuffed owl. And we don't mean plush. We mean taxidermied owl. Thoth not actually normally an owl, but they probably didn't have a taxidermied ibis, so <laughs> we'll let it we'll let it go. So so then we get our first like from the perspective of Toby chapter, where Toby's having a guilt trip because the first two times that there was a message that was mysteriously answered by a, seemingly none of them, it was actually him having snuck back to the alley and wrote an answer in. Um but the third time it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, because the third question, the first two questions were kind of larger future sort of questions. And Toby consulted a book of like great quotes and just picked one that sounded suitable. So it kind of was an answer that didn't exactly answer the question, but sounded mysterious. And like you could interpret it a certain way. But the third question came when Marshall misplaced security, his octopus, 
who he is never without and they couldn't find security anywhere and marshall was like we should ask the oracle and so they do and of course toby doesn't know where security is (laughs) and like nobody wants to be the one that like writes an answer to that question about where security is and be wrong or like tell Marshall that something has happened to his octopus. But uh, lo and behold, when they check the paper, it says to check under the altar of set uh, because they, they, they'd set up a couple little temples basically uh, with set being sort of their antagonist for the Egypt game. And so he has an altar with a, with a, with a rock that they decided was kind of ominously shaped on top of an egg crate and and sure enough when they look under it there's security but they don't know who wrote the answer yeah so so there's that mystery and then suddenly april almost gets child murdered (laughs) yeah boom (laughs) It, it really it really is sort of a very swift climax because it it's a night where melanie and melanie's parents are at a concert April is babysitting Marshall. No, excuse me. Visiting Marshall. You're right. Visiting Marshall. And Marshall does not like to be babysat, but yeah. he accepts there being a babysitter if the parents frame it as this person is coming to visit yeah. you. April is visiting Marshall while Marshall's parents and older sister are at a concert. And they they go to Egypt late. Was it to get a book? Yeah, she realized she left her math book there yeah. and she couldn't do her homework. Yeah. And she was it sort of at this point was actually starting to do pretty well in school and accept her position in you know, life where she was, you know, with her grandmother and she realized that she was going to get a terrible grade if she didn't go. Yeah. Get the book. Yeah, and so they they go to Egypt to get the book and it's after dark. It's um you know, not not a time they would normally be going to Egypt at all and, and didn't warrant telling any of the others because she expected to just be in and out pretty quick. But um, when she went into the yard and found her book, she then got grabbed from behind and it seemed like she was going to get kidnapped. And we were, we're left to assume at that moment, and this, this ends up being true, that this is the child murderer. He starts strangling her. And she is rescued by the professor who has been watching like breaking open his window and crying for help and that's how we learn ultimately that the professor was watching them the entire time because i believe the the police ask marshall what he saw and marshall identifies the professor as the guy that is always watching through the window yeah (laughs) as being like the guy who saved april not the guy who was trying to kidnap April or kill April. Um, And so like necessarily at that point, they, they feel a little bit like Egypt maybe is over, which I guess is understandable. The child murderer is apprehended. Uh, Turns out he was a stock boy at the local store who I think briefly appeared earlier in the book. It's though this book has, mysterious elements the plot is not about the the egyptians cracking a child murder case like 
there's no clues or anything to be had there, I don't think. It's never anything that they concern themselves with any more than just when it causes them inconvenience as far as their parents not letting them out. Yeah. It's just sort of what amounts to the climax of the of the book and the thing that kind of reveals that other people know about Egypt and also gives some, you know, kind of traumatic experience to that particular location that maybe people don't want to repeat. And also is is a big emotional moment for April to kind of, I think, reassess her relationships with all the people involved and like realize that this she's she's built this uh, life here where she is very attached to her grandmother now and she does have all of these really great friends and she doesn't necessarily miss Hollywood anymore. Yeah, the thing that I found very interesting is when she, when when that's all happening in the like the police station and stuff. I'm like, okay, this is how she's gonna go home. The mother's gonna find out that she almost got a child murdered, but then it turns out later that she asked her grandmother to not tell the mother about anything that happened, presumably because I think April might have realized that maybe that would happen, and she didn't want to go. Yeah, we're never directly told that, but. April turning down the chance to visit is kind of the clearest statement we get that April no longer really wants to go back to Hollywood with her mother. This thing that she spent a lot of the early part of the book, uh, not just wanting, but expecting was a foregone conclusion that just any day her mother would show up to take her back. Um, She now no longer even wants that. There's definitely elements that as I was reading, I was like, so this is probably a little problematic now, especially when they're assigning all of this like um, new context to Egyptian deities and stuff like Set being the evil god, which is not really accurate to the mythology. But as appropriation goes, you know, I was expecting a lot worse, frankly, from just not having read this book in years and... I was kind of just expecting to come into it and it just be kind of like a lot of like clumsy appropriation or something. Yeah, I felt like it was fairly tame, honestly. It was just, yeah. you know, kids kind of simplifying Egyptology <laughs> for their own purposes. They used real history and stuff that they learned as a springboard for an imagination game that wasn't necessarily about trying to recreate egypt like in any way that they thought was accurate necessarily i think they clearly didn't think that they were acting just like real ancient egyptians right but it was just sort of the beginning for this shared world they built but the stuff that they brought to it was always the stuff that ultimately was more important i'm not sure how that statement of you know she didn't do so so terrible with the appropriation holds up when it comes to the sequel. Yeah, I just, I just, the sequel exists and I don't want to know about it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so let's um talk a little bit about uh, the background of this book. Zilpha Keatley Snyder was a teacher and author of 46? Holy moly. Books, ultimately. She's going to give Stephen King a run for his money. Uh, well, she's she's past the last turn of the game. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. 
Uh, yeah, she was uh, she was born in 1927, taught school in numerous states because her husband, um, at least for some of the time, had a military career that was moving around. Did teach for about a decade in Berkeley, which I think is around the time that she wrote The Egypt Game. It was not her first book, though it is probably her most famous. The characters, certainly in this book, but I think I got the vibe in other books too, were in various ways based upon children she had taught. This book was also partially springing from just what she said in her foreword was a fascination with Egypt that she had had. So it was kind of this combination of some personal experience and like this particular era that interested her when she was younger. And she talks about it kind of, and and she talks about the, uh, multicultural nature of the cast in a way that I I I, mm, I find mostly okay. I kind of got the vibe from the forward and from some of the things that I, I looked up that she's maybe she was maybe one of those people who was well intentioned but didn't entirely realize that occasionally she was dipping into maybe some exoticism. I will say there were there were two two thoughts I had on that while I was reading. The first was uh in descriptions of Elizabeth yeah, for sure. Uh, in particular, when she is able to sort of like demurely sweet talk the boys into not ratting them out, I felt like there was a little bit of like uncomfortable description of of how Elizabeth was able to sort of like, I don't know. It it just made me feel a little weird the way that she described it. And spe- specifically, I should state that Elizabeth... Um, uh, was a an Asian character. Yeah. So like describing her as like tiny and demure is sort of a little bit of a stereotype. Yeah, and, and she mentioned the shape of her eyes a couple times um, in a way that I felt, thought was like maybe a little bit fixated. Now, to be sure, we've talked about numerous books on this podcast by now that either had like really bad racial stereotypes in them or only didn't have those things because somebody edited the book before we got to it. That's true. And that is not the case with this book. I think that Snyder was genuinely invested from what I've read in celebrating the diversity of the kids that she had taught. Because um, the, the the Egyptians, um, all told, April is some unspecified white. Um, Melanie and Marshall are both black. Elizabeth and Ken are both Asian of some persuasion. I think... Ken was Japanese, and I think that it was not made clear where Elizabeth's family was from. Ken was Japanese, and Toby was nebulously Hispanic. His last name was, like, Aguilar. I don't think any of the characters, any of the children at least, were were meant to be, like, immigrants. They all seemed to be American kids of of this descent. But ultimately, for the most part, the race of the characters is not something that is integral to the plot, but it is there and is a thing that Snyder did on purpose because this was drawing from experience she had had with teaching classes of children in places that are uh, very diverse in terms of racial and cultural origin. And I think that she had the best of intentions in the way that she was depicting that stuff, even if some of it in some cases, feels a little bit uncomfortable to us now. Yeah, once I was done being relieved that 
there wasn't any like outright I mean I guess it's hard to say whether or not there was any tokenizing because it's kind of a you know she got one of many different types of folks it was a, it was a an impressive uh mix of backgrounds and I I wasn't expecting that in a yeah. book from this era well and here's here's the thing that um actually made me feel way better about it but also disappointed disney wanted to option this book Hmm. snyder would not sell it to them because they would not guarantee her a multiracial cast oh my gosh yeah fuck you mouse Or, or, or at least that is what snyder's longtime editor claims was the case that's great yeah when I was starting to do research for this, I was I thought, wow, I'm a little surprised that I don't think there's any adaptations that I know of, and that's apparently why, or at least why Disney didn't adapt it. Um, I didn't find any evidence of any other adaptation. I guess it might just be like very hidden somewhere, but yeah, that apparently is a thing that occurred. So that's great. I like that a lot. So all all that to say, we're two white folks talking about this book that does have a lot of things in it. And, uh, you know, I've seen a lot worse. I can't necessarily say for sure that if you are a person of, for instance, Egyptian descent, that it wouldn't make you uncomfortable the way that ancient Egyptian culture is utilized here. But um, I've definitely seen a lot worse. That's true. I suppose there could be something to say for the fact that, well, yes, she got Asian characters and black characters and etc. There's no Middle Eastern characters. Would you be surprised to know that this book is challenged in schools with some regularity? See, I'm not surprised because... You want to guess why? Okay, hold on. I'm going to make a guess. I'm going to guess that the real reason is the multiculturalism, but it's not the reason they say. The reason they say is because it depicts a absentee mother. I did not find any evidence that that was a reason that it was challenged. Well, like in Hatchet, that was challenged a lot because of the mother being depicted as as bad for cheating on the father. Interesting. The primary reason that this book is challenged is for its depiction of uh, rituals. Oh, for which, fuck's sake. Which, of course, I think we need to understand that there's the implicit um, non-Christian rituals uh, in that challenge. Like, for sure. I need to write in our show notes that this is an episode I'm going to have to flag as explicit because I know that I've sworn several times. <laughs> That's some bullshit. It seems like it's not challenged as often as some other things we talked about, certainly. I did find some evidence that there was at least, like, a measure of chatter about how suitable it was for children of the age it's presumably for because of the child murder part. But from what I found, it seemed like when it's challenged as far as being available in schools, it's got more to do with the ritualistic stuff. Uh, You mentioned the illustrations. The illustrations for the book were by Alton Rabel or Rabel, R-A-I-B-L-E. Not entirely sure how it's pronounced. Uh, Who was a uh, art teacher in California and, and department chair at a college of some kind that I didn't write down the name of. Illustrated many of Snyder's books, as well as doing illustrations for other children's books and other art things. His work, aside from 
being in children's books, which is probably what he's best known for. Uh, he's also had paintings exhibited at various places, including the Smithsonian Institution. So a, a person of some repute. And I, I, I like them a lot. Yeah, I, I like the illustrations. Yeah. They have a very particular style that I think is a little bit hard to put my finger on how to describe it. But I think to your point earlier, like there is a certain eeriness maybe. Yeah. As I said earlier, Snyder wrote 46 books. Uh, most of it, not all of them were, were children's books by the time of her death in 2014. And we can't say the title of the sequel. To yeah, the sequel to this slur. came out. This book was in 1968. Uh, the sequel didn't come out until 1997. Follows from the last line of this book. And it's uh, the same the same format of title, but with Egypt replaced with a slur for the Romani people. So yeah, not super wild that it was published in the late 90s without a problem, but, uh, you know, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be a little critical of the decision now. Maybe someday they will give it a different title uh, and, and republish it or something. I don't know. Have you read it? I have not. I did not know it existed until I Googled this book to do for the podcast. I would have read this book a few years prior to that, so it wouldn't have existed oh, when I read this book. And it just never occurred to me that there would have been a sequel, and I just never looked. This book was a Newbery Honor recipient. It did not win because it was the same year as From the Mixed Up Files of Mrs. Basil E. Frank Weiler. <laughs> <laughs> and I did not realize I did not realize they were literally in the same year two books that I read at close to the same age loved for many of the same reasons and they were literally in the same year and only one of them could be the Newbery Medal winner <laughs> yeah the last note that I have is that I did um I think it was interesting I found a uh an article from the American Journal of Play from an issue in 2018 where a uh, games scholar named Kathleen Martin suggested that uh, the Egypt game and some other similar children's books that depict this sort of ongoing imaginative play ought to be also considered in talking about the history of role-playing games. Mm. This this book did predate D&D by a little bit. The assertion is not that like the Egypt game was a direct influence on Dungeons and Dragons or anything, because there's no evidence that that's the case, even though, you know, who knows? Gygax had kids. But that the uh, oftentimes discussion of role-playing games and the, and the development of role-playing games as a form cite literary origins with, like, Tolkien and stuff, the stuff that is medieval fantasy, but not necessarily about how the game is played, just, like, what the game is about. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas some books for children with the Egypt game being a very good example do depict this like more formalized play pattern of a shared created narrative, uh, not because they invented that, but because kids do do that. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think of if I would have liked this book when I was your, your age, when I was your age. Yeah. <laughs> um, would I have liked this book two years ago? Uh, no. Uh, the age you were when you read this and I think I might have it's hard to say I think I would have been drawn to the fact that they set this whole thing up in this abandoned sort of secluded lot that they have to crawl through a hole to get in 
I think that would have struck me as like very secret gardeny, which I think I would have liked. Yeah. And the fact that they like keep Egypt a secret. Yeah, I think I would have liked liked that aspect of things. I I didn't really go for mysteries too much as a kid. Um but I think that the mystery of who wrote the notes sort of pops up as being a mystery so much later into the book that I think I might have just been sucked in by then. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I I contemplated for myself whether I would call this a mystery from a genre perspective. It has mysterious elements, but like there's no overarching mystery plot. And, and even the mystery of who wrote the answer about where security is, that mystery is introduced and resolved within a chapter or two. It's not a thing that the characters spend time trying to solve. Yeah, I'm not sure what genre I would put this book in. If somebody told me it was a mystery and I read it, I would probably be a little bit like I didn't expect this, though it does have mysterious elements. I mean, it it's, I guess it's sort of drama, like a children's drama, because there is a lot of character stuff going on, like all of the characters, and, and particularly April, the way that they're coping with like difficulties in their lives through the Egypt game is pretty constantly a part of the book, you know? So yeah, it's, it's tricky. It's tricky to categorize. I think what, uh, how many, uh, pages you think you want to give this particular book? Oh, I don't know. I, I liked it, but it was kind of like a, like a benign, like, I, I feel like the, the thing that this book might be lacking for me is a little bit of humor there just wasn't a lot was there anything in this book that like made me laugh i feel like as a result our discussion for this book has been very like calm and not a lot of banter between us there's just not a lot of not a lot of humor to be had in any of this yeah there there's some there's some funny moments but they're very minor and often just kind of a result of Marshall saying something just sort of like incisively precocious. But nothing so precocious as my mother says I'm an angel or yeah. whatever it was. That... My mother says I came from heaven. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it was. Like I said, I, I associate mixed up files in this book closely in my head for a number of reasons. And definitely upon rereading them, I do still find mixed up files to be just super magical. And a lot of that is, I think, down to the fact that Konigsberg is a really funny writer. I think that she's just got a really great dry wit in her writing. And Snyder is just a little more straightforward. Yeah, so it was just it was just like a nice, pleasant book. And I'm very happy for the old man shopkeeper who sort of like ultimately gets back his lust for life from watching these kids playing make-believe. I don't think we talked about that at all. That was the resolution. <laughs> the shopkeeper was a... A sad, depressed, but kindly old man. Anyway, I'm going to say, like, I think I give this one, like, a three peaches. I was going to go 3.5. Yeah. I enjoyed reading it. It was nice. There were parts that I really liked. There were parts that I, I did wish there was a little more urgency or drive or, or something. And I think some of that is down to, like, as you said, the writing just doesn't have as much humor or something in it as some things do to kind of keep those parts where there's not a lot going on to be like an entertaining read 
I definitely understand why it really drew me in as a kid. It just doesn't do that as much for me as an adult. So, yeah. so yeah, that's our that's our episode about uh, the Egypt game. Well, thank you for introducing me. Oh, you're quite welcome. I'm just glad that it wasn't a really uncomfortable read. I was very concerned that this was going to just be an excruciating glimpse at white lady writes about Middle Eastern culture. Yeah, yeah. It was definitely refreshing after Z for Zachariah. Well, so next episode is one of our fated increment of fives. So I have enlisted a friend to come introduce us to a book that she has read that neither of us have. So stay tuned. <laughs> I don't know why that was so awkward for are me we, to get out there. Are we keeping it a secret? <laughs> I don't know. It's, I don't. The book, no. the book in question, uh, is "Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry" by Mildred D. Taylor, a a book that is uh, not so light and pleasant, but very good. I think Shh. we're not supposed to give away the secret that we actually recorded that episode before this one. Oh yeah, you're right. You're right. We need to keep that secret. You're ruining how the the sausage is made, or or yeah something Hamilton a quote a book that is I guess about weather I assume yeah. a meteorologist the jig is up it's fine we, yeah. we've already read it uh, we yeah. recorded that last week just yeah. because you know with a guest you've got to schedule things differently Schedules, but yeah. woo yeah it's a good discussion you should come back for it but it is a heavy discussion so it is my Dog Ate My Book Report is hosted and produced by Rin and Brandon and edited by Derek Valen and Daisy McNamara. The music used in this podcast was licensed by Epidemic Sound. Transcripts were generated by otter.ai, then heavily edited by us because the AI doesn't understand what we're saying half the time. And our icon image was illustrated by Cindy Lau. To be fair to the AI, I didn't expect it to get hork correct. <laughs> I have a question or comment for the team. You can find us on our website, which links to all of our socials at dogatemybookreport.blueberry.net. Blueberry does not have any E's. Or by emailing at dogatemybookreport at gmail.com. We'd be super excited to know what books you loved growing up. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>